play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, the last meal of Jeopardy! champion Ken Jennings. In 2004, Ken won 74 Jeopardy! games, and he still holds the record for the longest Jeopardy! winning streak, and he's the second highest earning contestant in game show history. I don't know if it's gauche to say how much he made, but it's on Wikipedia, so I'm going to tell you, $3,196,300. There you have it. So, you know, 14 years after his win seemed like the perfect time to interview Ken. When are you going to have that game show guy from 2004 and on I'm like, your podcast? Wait for it. I'm not ready yet. The time's not right. <laughs> right. It's like a cosmic thing. Like, you know, it had to be like the moon was in a certain place. And... I can't do it. He's a Gemini. Ken's last meal is not jello. But as a Mormon and someone who lived in Utah, he sure did eat a lot of it. Why is there a connection between Jell-O and Utah and Jell-O and Mormons? <laughs> well, Jell-O seems to be more popular in Utah, Salt Lake City, than any other area. We'll learn about the history of Jell-O with Lynn Beluccio, executive director of the Leroy Historical Society in Leroy, New York, which is home to the country's one and only Jell-O gallery. And from Lynn, I have learned that people will mix almost anything into a bowl of Jell-O. You can put mayonnaise on it, it's a salad. You put whipped cream on it, it becomes a dessert. I'm sorry, did you say put mayonnaise on it? Yes. <laughs> that will determine whether your Jell-O is a salad or a dessert. So take a Jell-O shot and please state all answers in the form of a question as we glide into this interview with Ken Jennings. Ken competed on Jeopardy! when he was 30 years old and living in Salt Lake City. But his love for trivia blossomed as a kid living in Korea. Part of your childhood was in Seoul and Singapore because of your dad's job. Is that right? Yeah, he was a lawyer and lived over. We lived in Asia for 15 years or more. We moved over when I was in second grade. I grew up here in Seattle, moved overseas in second grade, and then stayed till college. Moved back to the States, went to UW, actually, here in, here in town. So how did that influence the way that you eat as an adult? Did you eat a lot of the local food when you were in those places? Yeah. You know, living in South Korea in 1982, eating American cuisine was not an option because you just couldn't find it, except unless it was like black marketed peanut butter and Pop-Tarts from the army base. You know, there was, you, you pretty much had to eat like everybody else ate. So a lot of rice, a lot of noodles, a lot of kimchi. And as a result, I really, uh, <laughs> for many years, kind of disliked that kind of food because I felt like it had been foisted on me. You know, I went from this sort of American PBJ childhood and then it's like, here's your kimchi and rice. That's what there is. And I really sort of thought, you know, clearly this like fermented cabbage that's been in the ground all winter is not an improvement over the processed foods I've been enjoying. You know, I, I would not have thought of that as my kind of food. But as an adult, I've actually really come to like that kind of food, um, even though I, I never associate it with like, it's not comfort food for me at all. You know, when I go out to eat Korean, it feels like a... It's punishment food. <laughs> <laughs> it's gr a grueling experience that I can barely <laughs> make it through all the side dishes. No, it just it's, uh, it's, an, it's a sort of an event food. It's experience food stuff yeah. for me. It does not remind me of home. What was your life like as a kid as far as trivia was concerned? 
Uh, as far as I have ever seen in the world, trivia kids are born and not made. Like, you just know if you have that kind of kid that's always dragging the Guinness Book of World Records around and annoying mom and dad with facts about polar bears or whatever. And uh, I was very much that kid. We lived overseas. Our only contact to U.S. culture was like Army, TV, and radio because there's like a bajillion U.S. servicemen in Korea. As a result, me and all my friends were obsessed with Jeopardy because every day after school at four, that's what the Army put on TV. We would run home from school and there was only one thing to watch. We all watched Jeopardy. And we were just like an obsessive fan club of Jeopardy even at 10 years old. Hmm. So I guess, you know, I've been genetically engineered to be on one particular quiz show. And so did you and your friends play along with the show out loud? And did you know then that you were better than them? No, I wasn't better than that. I was 10 years old, you know, but you, you do feel very smart as a kid when you know some answer, you know. Uh, it was the same year Trivial Pursuit was very big. And, you know, just to know some bit of boomer trivia that you had picked up somewhere that like mom or dad didn't know, that's an amazing feeling. Totally. For a, you know, kid with low self-esteem, you're like, wow, like I... You know, I know something. Facts matter. That actually, that thing I learned actually came in handy. You know, obviously you're a smart person, but is trivia more smarts and intelligence or is it memorization and just being curious and reading a lot of stuff or both? Yeah, it's mostly a parlor trick. It, it does boil down to curiosity. People you see on Jeopardy, they're not savants with photographic memories, you know, Rain Man types. They don't memorize the phone book. They're just really curious about the world and pretty much without distinction for type of knowledge. You know, most normal people are like, yeah, I'm interested in history, but oh, don't ask me about science or love baseball, don't really get hockey. You know, trivia people are just omnivorous. And when you're interested in something, facts just stick. So these people aren't trying to know everything. They're just really engaged in the world around them. And without even meaning to, they just know stuff. So when you were on Jeopardy and you were winning and winning and you're getting up to, you know, 74 wins, were there times where you actually studied certain topics that you didn't know a lot on? Or was this all based on knowledge that you had just from your general curiosity? Most of it's organic. But, you know, uh, there is a Jeopardy canon. You know, there's stuff that keep not not like a canon they fire at losing contestants, but like a, a body, a corpus of knowledge that like comes up time and again, you know, presidents and Shakespeare and world capitals. And a lot of these are things you can memorize on a list. When I got the phone call, you're going to be on in three weeks, I, you know, I panicked and my wife and I spent that whole week with flashcards, you know, learning about presidents and matching world capitals and cannons, uh, you know, firing cannons at yeah. people, cocktails. Like I don't drink, but there's always potent potables on Jeopardy. So I memorized the ingredients for all these cocktails. You know, I could, I could, today to this day, I could mix a Harvey Wallbanger if I had to. I don't know if the world's crying out for a Mormon bartender, but you know, I, <laughs> like, like I, I memorized all these ingredient lists and some of it came up, like it paid off. Yeah. Were there many food categories? Was that something that you knew about or that you had to study up on? I was not a foodie at the time. I was poor. I was recently graduated college. I mean, not poor, poor, but like, you know, white person poor, like recently graduated college student just starting at a computer job. and Like just like the low level caviar. Yeah, exactly. Like the cheap caviar. But Jeopardy does have a lot of food. Like it's, um, I think they like the idea that their brand is kind of a you know, chi-chi lifestyle kind of a thing. There's that funny little thing that Alex Trebek does where he walks down the line and he asks a question. You're supposed to get to know the contestant better, but it's always a little awkward and dorky. And you had to do that 
74 times? Uh, 75, because there's a loss, too. That's right. Well, we're not talking about that today. I appreciate we're not that. Talking about As per that. my writer. That's right. <laughs> 74 times. Uh, and then he just left. He disappeared like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> he walked away. Nobody knows what happened. There was a puff of smoke, though, when you left. <laughs> so how did you come up with 74 little trivial conversations to have with Alex Trebek? What were you getting down to on, like, game 66, game 67? Yeah, I'm with you. I hate that part of the show. Like, that's why DVR was invented. So you don't have to watch those people tell their best story and it's still yeah. so sad, you know? <laughs> Everybody prepares for it. You make a list of all these things, yeah. but you don't know what Trebek's going to say. Oh, you don't know what no. he's going to ask you. He's, okay. a, he's a force of nature, man. They can't. Con- nobody there can control him. Plus, you know, being very good at trivia does not self-select for America's most sparkling <laughs> conversationalist. I want to say that that's in a another, nice way. That's another quiz show. Uh, Do you remember any of your little conversations, ones that went better and ones that were a little bit awkward? It, it, you know, it did. The well did run dry very quickly mm-hmm. because they'd be like, OK, Ken, you're coming back next week. Uh, what if you went out? We need 10 more stories. Sometimes you make stuff up. Really? Yeah, what I was re- the story you made up? I remember just writing down that I liked airline food. Which is not true, but like it's it's a funny. It gives uh, Alex a chance to right. make a little quip. It's perfect for Jeopardy use. Nobody cares if I actually like airline food. I remember one time he just got fed up and he was like, "This is also food related." He said, uh, "Ken, uh, is there anything you want to ask me?" And I had I had no idea this was coming. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't. What would you say in that situation? The first thing I just thought of was, "Have you been cryogenically frozen?" Because <laughs> you're getting. I just think of like Larry King, like that he's. They unfreeze him every night. They just like thaw him out because he's just so old. Larry King is actually jerky. He's wait. Larry King's a jerk. No, he's he's jerky. Oh, like beef jerky. Yes. Oh, okay. He's the processed beef product. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I said, uh, you know, I hemmed and hot for you know five tens. It seemed like forever ten seconds, and I finally said, "Well, what did you have for breakfast this morning, Alex?" And I'll never forget what he said to me: a diet Pepsi and a baby Ruth. What? That is so unexpected. The breakfast of champions. Before you came in, we were talking about this, my producer Aaron and I, and I said that I thought he appeared to be one of those people who just ate to stay alive. Like he didn't look like somebody who enjoys food. So I would imagine for breakfast, he'd eat something healthy and sensible. It didn't matter what it tasted like. I didn't know he ate like a six-year-old. I don't know much about his food taste apart from that one anecdote. He is, uh, you know, you do think of him as sort of some cultured man of the world. I like the idea that you um, you think he just takes the minimum caloric intake to maintain yeah. Trebek metabolism. Well, I always also think that he is like... Um, uh, Ned Flanders, that he's like really buff underneath his suit, <laughs> that he's just like nerdy from the neck up. He's like the mullet of bodies, like nerd up top, sex machine down I, I below. You might be revealing a little too much about your <laughs> your game show host fetish. Uh, <laughs> How do you eat on Jeopardy? Is there craft services in the back? Do you get a little lunch? Do you have to bring your own in a paper bag? How do you eat when you're on a game show? This is great. I've never done Jeopardy colon the food interview. <laughs> There is some pastry and fresh fruit in the dressing room. All the contestants are sort of sequestered like a jury uh, for, you know, 1950s quiz show scandal reasons. Yeah. Uh, It's still a felony to rig a game show. So there's- Is that true? Yeah. Like if if something untoward were to happen on Wheel of Fortune today, like people could go to jail. There could be congressional hearings again. Wow. It's not just like, you know, "Ah, Sony doesn't want to get sued. Like it's a legal issue. Um, So the contestants are all sequestered and then- and then if you survive till lunch, because you, you practice all morning, do orientation, you play in the afternoon, they do five shows. So it's like a full week in a day. And uh, every time somebody loses, it pretty much is like a cannon. You know, they, they just disappear and like they'll call, they'll, you know, they'll call you an Uber. Bye. Um, Half a croissant is all that's left of them. <laughs> the people who have survived, people who have won or not played yet get to go to lunch. <gasps> 
So you go to the studio commissary where you have been given some chit for $15 worth of uh, Sony Pictures food. And you might see, uh, I've seen Seth Rogen like off sitting in the corner, you know. Um, usually the, the big stars are not eating in the commissary. Okay. It's not a 1930s Warner Brothers tour. Was it like being in the cafeteria in elementary school? You have your tray and you're like, Seth, is anyone sitting here? <laughs> it's, it's pretty much like that, except you have to all sit together because otherwise there would be a congressional investigation. Now that we've whet your appetite with a little Jeopardy lunchroom talk, we're going to get to the main event, Ken Jennings' last meal. But we're going to do it right after this break. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Okay, Ken Jennings, let's get to the main question. What would your last meal be? I feel like I joked on uh, Twitter once that if I, was, if I was on death row, I would want like uh, a McDLT or something, you know, some impossible to obtain fast food menu item of the past. You McBLT? Know. McDLT. You don't know what the McDLT is? No. Am I thinking of the right thing? No, I know what a McDLT is. What's the is. D? McDonald's. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought... <laughs> It doesn't have like dog meat in it or anything. <laughs> it was a McDonald's gimmick of the eighties. He got me again. Perhaps you're too, <laughs> I was outwitted again. Perhaps you're too young. That's that's what I think. It's a, it was a McDonald's uh, uh, attempt at sort of a, a nicer burger, which was served with the uh, lettuce and tomato in a separate compartment. So the hot side would stay hot and the cold side would stay cold. Hey, you say you're getting tired of lettuce and tomato hamburgers that don't quite make it? Then look at McDonald's new McDLT. I'm talking quarter pound of beef on the hot, hot side. The new McDLT. Crisp lettuce and tomato on the cool, cool side. The new McDLT. And just so everyone knows, that guy who is singing in this commercial is Jason Alexander, who played... George Costanza. George Costanza on Seinfeld. He is singing and dancing in a McDonald's ad. Okay, back to Ken. I'm sure it's a terrible burger, but I just thought it would delay the execution because there's no way they can track down a McDLT. Like, I'm going to be good for, you know, weeks or months or whatever. Years. Years. But I don't think the premise of your show revolves around my execution, right? You're not asking people what they would want from a penal system. <laughs> I, I try not to. I always say people can interpret however they want because some people think of it that way. Um, <laughs> some people are fixated about being executed by the state. Actually, you know what? I would say that my more intelligent guess, not to say the others aren't intelligent, but the people that are known for their intellect, like Neil deGrasse Tyson and the writer Mary Roach, both focused on if they were executed and how to extend their lives. Well, so that seems to be a smart 
person thing that's to just do. the universe we live in the america we live in today all smart people expect to be rounded up and killed at <laughs> right. any at any moment you know too much <laughs> <laughs> uh if there's no uh you know green mile at the end of this story it's supposed to kind of boil down to what you love the most and what's most important to you i'd probably say barbecue has anybody done barbecue no one has done barbecue really yeah i had my my wife's a big fan of this podcast and i had her at one point like a month ago run down the things that people had done oh. so i wouldn't duplicate she's just reading through on her on her app she's just telling me uh, uh corn dogs you know whatever they are i'm sure corn dogs was not one of them and no, I, it was not and i didn't remember barbecue but you know that was a few months ago right so I'm the first in on yeah, barbecue? Yeah, you're the first in on barbecue. I think that would be it. And I say that at the risk of seeming like a barbecue guy, which is about the furthest thing from my self-conception. You do have barbecue sauce all over your face <laughs> right. right now. You are eating a gigantic thing of ribs right now, right now. while we're talking. It's yeah. super rude. I can smell the baked beans in your pocket. <laughs> it's uh, Well, I just think, you know, it's sort of a... There's a specific kind of guy who says Q and has fights about uh, Carolina or Memphis or I don't even know what the things are. It just strikes me as kind of the worst kind of connoisseur culture to be into something so like dad-like as slow-cooked meats, you know, and to have very strong dogmatic opinions about how Kansas City is doing it wrong or whatever. So I, I would say I have nothing to do with that kind of barbecue culture. Okay, so you're not a barbecue culture person, but you like the taste. I just like to eat it. Like a lot as much as possible. Okay. Well, I know you just said that you don't really want to debate the different regions, but is there a particular region that you like that style of sauce best? Yeah. Um, again, this is getting into the whole like, there's too much vinegar in North Carolina, but not South Carolina or whatever. But you don't I, have to be mad about it. You can just have like a gentle opinion. A mild preference? Yeah. Oh, if that's okay. Um, Texas or Kansas City? <laughs> I would say like I, I kind of like that. I like a like on the sweetish side, yeah. which I think is not the in the know thing to want. And I don't know. Like I don't want I'm not one of the I don't want to slathered in sauce. Like I'm, I'm not at, you know, Applebee's or, or something. You know, I don't. I'm, That's not I, where you want to have barbecue. Right. I'm, last o- meal. I'm OK with a dry rub or something. Okay. You know, I'm fine with that. I prefer ribs. And I think maybe like if I was a, one of these guys, I'd like brisket instead. I don't oh. I don't know. Do you like pork ribs or beef ribs I better? Think, I think pork. And I don't really know if there's a reason. Maybe they're like fattier. It's probably worse for you, maybe, or... I like them better. I just, I like the taste of pork better, and they're kind of juicier. They are And then the beef ones are like Flintstonian sometimes, (laughs) so it's like a little much. (laughs) Flintstonian. Uh Yeah, exactly. You're like, how do I even... And Yeah, you feel embarrassed when they serve the thing on the plate, and it goes over the edge of the plate. That is embarrassing. Yeah, it's like American excess. Right. No, I'm with you on the pork. And I think it does, um, sort of falls off the bone better pork often you know it's you slow unctuous. cook pork and it's it's unctuous yeah like an ointment oh i never knew an ointment to be unctuous Doesn't, isn't that what unctuous means it's like sort of uh it's oily or i've only used it in food terms and think of it as very like porcine like very like porky and kind of maybe it's the fattiness like that gooiness that ointment has yeah yeah, my last meal would be a big tub of Vaseline. Actually, I want to change my answer. <laughs> I like to. I, I've never used unctuous in a food sense, but I'm going to do no. that all the time now. Yeah, it's, have it's, you a, ever... it's a nice way to say it's like super oily and fatty and like that's yeah. what you're saying, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But in a good way. Right, exactly. Not in a bad way. So you don't like like barbecue sauce or rub. You just like ointment on your ribs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My favorite sauce is like Vicks Vapor Rub. Actually, <laughs> what, what region is that? 
<laughs> so minty. Maybe Morocco? <laughs> <laughs> it's eucalyptus yeah. It's Australian uh, barbecue. Koalas love those I ribs. go to Outback Steakhouse to get my mentholatum-flavored ribs. So what kind of sides do you like? Yeah, it's all about the sides, actually. Yeah. Like, as much as I like ribs, really, I almost think barbecue is just a vehicle for the side dishes. Yeah. Maybe that's part of my Korean upbringing. You know, there's a lot of barbecue, a lot of side dishes. That's true. You like the, the banchan? I do like the banchan so much. Those are the little side dishes they just bring out. You yes. order you order meat and then all of a sudden all this stuff comes and you're like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what that is. And they keep replacing them. They never end. Yeah. If you eat all this zucchini, guess what? More zucchini's More coming, zucchini. baby. I'm not an American exceptionalist in almost anything, but like as far as side dishes go, like we are kicking Korea's ass. There are some crossovers though. I don't know if this is just in America, but I've had many a... Uh, potato salad and macaroni salad when I've had Korean barbecue and yeah, the panchan. That must be our influence on them, I think. I think so, too. <laughs> um, okay, so what are your favorite side dishes with barbecue? Man, you can't go wrong. Um, I love, really, it's just carbs. It's just an excuse for carbs, right? I like cornbread a lot. Cornbread with honey butter, man. Black-eyed peas. I guess that's protein. Um, collard greens, that's like the healthy one, but it's really got a lot of Probably bacon grease in it if you I do think it right. They put like jowls in there and <laughs> yeah, it's full of jowls. Work fat, yeah. <laughs> Love the jowls. <laughs> Super unctuous. <laughs> what else? Grits. I don't know if people often eat grits with barbecue. But I really like grits with uh, with ribs. Okra. Controversial because it can get slimy. Yeah. It's unctuous in a bad way. Maybe this might be some ancestral memory because my um my dad's side of the family actually they're Southerners, Texas Oklahoma border, and I think before that deep South. Hmm. Um, so maybe there is some like ancestral memory that's just like, even though you're like the world's palest man living in Seattle, you must have black eyed peas, you know, like this is so much better than your food. I guess if you're genetically predisposed to trivia, you're even more genetically predisposed to barbecue if these were your people. What if it's on the same chromosome? <gasps> what if all, <laughs> what if all trivia nerds love barbecue and we just don't know? We never, we never asked. Maybe so. Well, Nathan Mirvold, who's a smart man, he right. is a barbecue champion. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of him as a specifically barbecue guy. But you're right. You know, maybe that is why you get the whole connoisseur thing of barbecue, because it's a kind of nerd, actually, you know. And these people don't self-identify as nerds. You know, the facts they know are sports statistics and cooking temperatures. But that's a kind of geekery, honestly, to be super into your cue. So you grew up Mormon. Yes. And you're still Mormon. I am Mormon. I'm curious about the food in Utah because I was thinking there's most states or regions of the country I can come up with some classic foods that go with that place. I can't think of anything. Oh, Utah has regional food. Do you know what it is? No. Jello. Oh, do you guys do the Jello salad or the Jello cake? What do you mean, you people? Sorry. <laughs> you, you Utonians. You didn't say you people. You said you guys. Utonians. I'm just messing with you. I think it's Utahans. Utahans. I'm actually a Seattle native. I was born here. But right. uh, Utah is well known for its bizarre jello concoctions, like from a 1958 Better Homes and Gardens magazine. Like, here's one layer of jello where we're putting in shredded carrot. And then above the lime jello, we're going to have strawberry jello with some canned peaches. And then on top, we've taken some raspberry jello and we've mixed in Cool Whip. Or, you know, Miracle Whip or something, you know. Gross. So you get these, yeah. So you get these amazing cross-sections of barely edible mid-century food. You know, I think Mormons, like maybe many American religious groups, sort of lag behind the culture by a few decades. And you can really see it in the food. It's jello salads. It's cream of mushroom-based casseroles. Like, you know, it's what would be hot dish in the Midwest. But in Utah, they're funeral potatoes. I've heard of that. And that's because this is a dish that's popular to bring to a funeral, right? Like to the No, it's because people after? die if you 
Oh, if, if you, you eat, eat too much, too much. is that what it is? No, no, it is. It oh, is. Okay. It is the. It is. No, you're right. I'm just. It's. A, it's the dish you bring to the bereaved. You know. But yeah, that's a very specific kind of frozen hash brown, uh, cream of mushroom soup and cheddar cheese kind of a thing, maybe with some green onions if you're fancy. Do you like that kind of food? I'm not against it, honestly. Like funeral potatoes are pretty good. Yeah. And that is comfort food to me because I was raised by that kind of a mom from that era. So I grew up eating all kinds of tuna noodle casseroles and whatnot. And so to me, that kind of is the taste of home. Your whole life is really determined by what you imprint on at age three or something, I think. I think so too. My mom uh, makes a jello that has, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's like black cherry jello with cubes of cream cheese, slivered almonds, and like some kind of canned cherry, and then like some Dr. Pepper or something in it, like some kind of soda. Like mix in, or she just pours it over the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like she, the and, then, and then itself. lights it on fire <laughs> yeah. as she's plating it. No, it's you, it, you put it in the mix, so it hardens okay. in with the jello. And it's That uh, one actually doesn't sound so bad to me. I eat it every Thanksgiving, you know? To me, it's like the taste of home. Wow, she still makes it. She still makes it. But I'm now that I've left the house once or twice, I am aware that that's kind of an odd idea. That's an odd family tradition. If you think that cream cheese and carrots in a jello mold is gross, wait till you hear some of the other old-timey jello recipes from the executive director of the Jello Gallery in Leroy, New York, which is where jello was born. We'll be right back. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Barbecue is delicious and diverse, and I am sure that each region of this country has its own fascinating barbecue history. But Jello jiggles. So I don't know. It seemed kind of like a no-brainer to focus this episode on the iconic brand of Jell-O. When I emailed Ken to tell him that our Jell-O conversation had escaped the cutting room floor, he emailed back, LOL, is my last meal now Jell-O, a food I almost never eat? That's awesome. Now, gelatin has been around for a long, long time. By the 1500s, people had figured out that boiling animal cartilage, bones, and skins for a long, long time resulted in a jelly-like substance, and aspic was born. Aspic is basically a meat jello. Mmm. But today we're talking specifically about jello, J-E-L-L-O, with the help of Lynn Beluccio. She's the executive director of the Leroy Historical Society in Leroy, New York, which houses the Jell-O Gallery. Jell-O brand gelatin started in Leroy in 1897, and it was a carpenter by the name of Pearl Bixby Waite who, I don't know, tried a lot of other things and decided he was going to package this flavored sugared dessert under the name of Jell-O. And his wife, May, came up with the name, and it has to have the hyphen. And um, 
they trademarked J-E-L-L hyphen O. They did not patent the recipe because there were lots of other flavored gelatins available and marketable. So, um, and that was actually what they sold two years later was the trademark. And um, they sold it to a fairly prosperous businessman in Leroy by the name of Orator F. Woodward. And Woodward had um, tried a lot of different things. He was a fellow that didn't graduate from high school, but was an entrepreneur, seemed to be able to market almost anything, was in the patent medicine business, had a coffee substitute that he called Grano that also had a hyphen. And he started what was known as the Genesee Pure Food Company. So in 1899, the Genesee Pure Food Company acquired the rights to Jell-O, J-E-L-L hyphen O, for $450. I guess the, the claim to fame really is their advertising. They were able to make Jell-O a common known uh, commodity. Um, by 1906, when Orator Woodward died, gross sales of Jell-O almost reached a million dollars. So in a few years, he was able to parlay his $450 investment into a million dollar a year business. So what is the scene like in Leroy? You live there today. How big of a part does Jell-O play in the town? Is this something that everybody eats or are you guys sick of it by now? Um, no, I mean, you know, the, the company moved out of town in 1964. So, you know, there's still people in town that, you know, will say my grandmother and my mother or father worked, as they say, worked at the Jell-O. But people in town, I think, kind of look upon it as part of their history. You can walk up and down Main Street and people will tell you a Jell-O story. So let's talk about all the funky things that people put in Jell-O. So starting from the 1930s, it sounds like there was even savory Jell-O. Can you talk about Jell-O's past and some of the old recipes that were popular and things that people would suspend in it? Traditionally, Victorians were always putting strange things in gelatin and um, made congealed salads. And traditionally, when they started introducing recipe books for Jell-O, they included some of the Victorian recipes. So you will find what they do is they add a tablespoon of vinegar to take the sweetness away, but it still has the uh, molding ability of the gelatin to mold it into one of my favorites, which um, people kind of laugh at is I love the horseradish recipe where you take and uh, put horseradish in the, in the jello, usually lemon, but you put in the tablespoon of, of uh, vinegar and then you pour it into a hollowed out green pepper and then you slice it in wedges and serve it with roast beef. So that's a very good savory one. I've also done the corned beef salad in Jell-O. I've done the chicken salad in Jell-O. I've done some of the more obscure recipes. I, I think the thing that about Jell-O that people maybe don't think about is the fact that gelatins were an elitist food. Only the rich people could afford all the things that it would take to put into it. Um, and this is going back into the 16, 1700s too, but it wasn't something you just whipped up for the kids when they got home for school. And what Jell-O did was for 10 cents a box, you could serve, you know, one of these very beautiful jellies that the rich people ate. So their early marketing kind of uh, reflects that. They show a butler serving jello. They show, you know, the maid serving jello at a tea party. And so it's not until fairly recently, and I'm going to say until maybe the 1950s, that it becomes what we consider kids' food. We get a lot of calls at the museum thinking that we're a children's museum because most people now think of jello as being, you know, children's food. But traditionally it wasn't. It was only something that would have been very special and something that would be 
the centerpiece of the table. In the 1950s, Jell-O introduced savory flavors like celery, Italian salad, mixed vegetable, and seasoned tomato. But these are all long gone. They did also have a root beer flavor, which I think sounds good. And they had a cola flavor. I'd be super into that. I, I love would be cola into flavor. that too. Yeah. So as Ken said earlier, Jell-O is the regional cuisine of Utah. And he might have been joking, but it's actually true. Why is there a connection between Jell-O and Utah and Jell-O and Mormons? <laughs> well, Jell-O seems to be more popular in Utah, Salt Lake City, than any other area. And it's tied in with the fact that it has a great shelf life. A box of Jell-O will sit on the shelf for a couple of years. And um, part of the tradition in, in the uh, uh, Church of the Latter-day Saints is to have food set aside, you know, for a, a couple of years. And when I was out in uh, Salt Lake City for the Salt Lake City Olympics, I uh, had a chance to talk with the lieutenant governor of Utah, Olean Walker. So I said to her, I said, how come, you know, you guys eat so much Jello, And she said, because we have large families and it's relatively inexpensive. If you're from the Midwest, most families have Jello food traditions and they will share those. It's so funny when people come into the museum and they kind of whisper and say, oh, I really like Jello or I use my grandmother's recipe, but they kind of whisper it to you. We know they're from the East Coast or the West Coast. People from the Midwest find that kind of strange. They just start blurting out all of their favorite family recipes. So it's not just Utah. It is it may be more American than apple pie. Did you tell me that they actually designated it the state food? Um, it was the state snack. Um, the year before the Salt Lake City Olympics, there was a group of students who decided they were going to petition the Utah legislature, and um, they got enough signatures, and so Jell-O became the official state snack of Utah. It's true. And that was Ken Jennings' last meal. Thank you, Ken Jennings, for coming in. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You have one of those names that it's hard to just say your first name. I just want to say the whole thing. That happens all the time. Hey, Ken Jennings. What's up, Ken Jennings? People do that to me, too. Rachel Bell, Rachel Bell. There must be something about the rhythm. You've got the Rachel Bell, which is like Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown, Rachel Bell. It's just a pleasing rhythm for the ear. You just had like a nice little Rain Man moment. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown, Rachel Bell, Rachel Bell. (laughs) Gotta watch Wapner. (laughs) Ken co-hosts a new podcast called Omnibus with musician and podcaster John Roderick. You should listen to it. Ken has also written a bunch of books. His 12th book is coming out this year. You can find all of them at ken-jennings.com. Thanks so much to the executive director of the Leroy Historical Society, Lynn Beluccio, who graciously took my call, even though she was trying to get out the door to go tractor shopping. In 1997, somebody did a did a survey and 97% of the American public knew what Jell-O was, but they didn't know who the president of the United States was. So <laughs> this episode is produced by Aaron Mason and me, and our theme music is by Prom Queen. And a huge congrats to my last two guests, filmmakers Greta Gerwig and Guillermo del Toro for their Oscar nominations for Lady Bird and The Shape of Water, respectively. Both are up for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and about a dozen other nominations. And if you haven't listened to those episodes already, you can start with a little mole with Guillermo and then have funfetti for dessert with Greta. Oh, and if you like the show, subscribe and leave a review. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal.